Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. So today on the Sakara Life podcast, we have our dear friend, Ali Bogard, joining us. We thought long and hard about how to define her and explain her to you all if you have not heard of her. But I think the best way is for her to explain herself and for you to take a listen uh, in the next hour of our conversation She's a very special person with a very special outlook on life, and she is a teacher to many, including Whitney and I. I would just say Allie is one of those very special people on the planet that can just crack open your heart and Mm -hmm. get to the root of it all. Um, She has been a leading yoga and meditation teacher in New York City for several years, but she's so much more than that. I'd also mention that she is the co-creator of Upwards Gold, which is a beautiful teaching platform that you can check out, upwards.gold. And I would just say to listen to this episode with an open heart and open mind and listen to the very last line, the very last word, because just everything she says is so beautiful and so powerful down to the very end. Before we kind of really get into the meat of whatever it is we're going to talk about today, we thought we'd just take a moment and ask you, like, what have you been thinking about lately? What's been a theme for you? What's been coming up for you recently? Yeah, what are you studying or learning or teaching, preaching, whatever these days? It's threefold. First thing that's the biggest point of practical contemplation for me is how to stay really close to what's good and life fulfilling, both in the people I spend time with and the surroundings I'm in, but most importantly, the thoughts I let myself think or the places inside that I cultivate. How to stay close to what is really nourishing, abundantly fulfilling, and good. I think it's really important to be close to goodness. And The thing I'm contemplating the most is when we're in a moment we've never been in before, then there has to be room to play inside of a paradigm that's never been before. So I'm really taking all of these limited beliefs about how I think the world must work and how I must work inside of the world and playing with those game pieces of how to operate inside of a new paradigm where the things that I value or we value get supported and and what actions would I take and what actions would I recommend like clients and people to take if we were really inside of a new game, a new paradigm. And I'm so deeply in a faith that there is a 
a new world inside of this world that wants to be born through us. And so what that feels like and the little breadcrumb trails of it showing itself to us in how we relate to each other and to our environment and to the things that nourish life. That's what I'm contemplating. How do we play inside of a new world with a game that actually honors what we want to do here? And just giving you a heads up, I'm really emotional these days. Like I just started a few days ago where just about anything is going to make me cry. (laughs) There's something about the two of you that has such old remembrance for me that the moment you feel something, I feel something and I don't know what begins what. (laughs) Yeah, it might just be like, usually it just bounces between Whitney and I. I love talking about this as a theme of where do we want to go and can we dare imagine what this world to be because I think change isn't just hard because it's changing in the moment change is really hard if you can't see what's ahead and I think so many of us can't imagine a world other than the one that we live in and so how do we start to reimagine our future in a real way that feels at the same time like we can get there. Yeah. And if we're really playing in new paradigm, new world, reimagining what I know my mind does and what the mind does is it takes what we've known and just 2.0 is it. Like it just makes it a little better. So if I'm dreaming of a relationship, it's just a little better than the ones that didn't work out before or a new economy, just a little more fair, but like it's not enough. I think what we're in with this whole moment of collective experience is we've broken the spell to certainty and we've broken the spell to control. You know, people say like, oh, it's so hard because there's so little certainty and there's so little control over what's going to happen, but we never had it. We were under the spell of it. And so at least we're in this collective truth telling of we never had it. And now we're actually telling the truth that we don't have it. Yeah. I just started watching um, the Netflix series on Bill Gates. And I know he's somewhat controversial and whatnot, but it talks about different projects he's worked on where he tackles what he thinks are some of the biggest challenges for the entire planet. And one is on reinventing the toilet. So how do you, all these kids dying from illnesses that could be completely preventable if the cities and towns and villages and slums and whatnot that they lived in had proper waste management systems. But the way that these, like especially in India and the slums, the way they're built on top of each other, there's no way to go in and say, okay, we're going to do construction here and put in piping. Yeah. No, it's just totally not possible. So he said, how do you, let's completely reinvent the toilet, like on a whole new level, take away everything that you know about a toilet and start fresh. And to solve real world problems, sometimes you have to unlearn everything that you learned before, like delete everything that was in your mind, everything you thought you knew about something to make space for a whole new idea or vision. God, it's, it's so revolutionary and so deeply hard because if we take that to the micro level of like, let me just re-envision not the toilet for the whole developing world, but just how I am in relationship to money or in relationship, like just my micro me. To reconstruct that reality, I have to take out a lot of the conditioned beliefs that I think make me me, make you you. And 
it's revolutionary. And you also, I feel like, have to really understand what have been the inputs that have convinced you of your story. And if they've been your experiences, realizing that your experiences are also just your mind telling you a story about what happened, that it's not actually what happened. It's the story that we have of what happened that I think informs our, our reality. And for instance, I can think about not growing up with a father and I can think about that actually happened, but it's actually how it's affecting my life and my current situation is my story about not really having a father figure in my life. That's the part that really, when I try and kind of unwind the narratives I have about who I am and my life and my circumstances, that's the part where I get really tripped up because I can't even think about where the narratives started because they're just so ingrained in us. It's so hard to un, it's so hard to unlearn the things, especially when we believe that they're things that are just true. They're not even, <laughs> they're not even stories. Yeah. And, and it's impossible to see the self when looking at the self like that. So thank the great spirit that it gives us relationships that trigger us into taking a good look. And you know, that chasm, that giant chasm that exists between the fact of not having a father and then the meaning maker of the mind, all of the things that that must mean. It must mean I was abandoned. It must mean no man will ever measure up. It must mean, it must mean the chasm between fact and meaning maker. I think it's in that space between that we can really get creative with like, what, what did I interpret that as, as a young person that was well above my pay grade to even interpret the world? But I interpret it as I know I was worth being abandoned. Like, that's curious. Or, or however that comes across. Yeah. And I, it's like, it's so ingrained in me that I don't even know. I don't even know where it really lives. Like sometimes it'll come up, but then I can narrate my way out of that being a reason for any insecurity or life choices or whatever. And like, and then on the contrary to what I'm saying, it also just like proves what I'm saying. We're like, the mind is so powerful. And it's so crazy to me that everything we're talking about is literally all of us just changing our minds. And people think we're, I don't know, are we on the outskirts of things thinking that like at Sakara thoughts to things, all the work that you do, Allie, like I'd say we're somewhat on the fringe of, you know, if you take everyone's beliefs out of the world, we're somewhat on the fringe of spirituality and believing, you know, in the powers that be in the universe. But how, when to me, it's just like time and time again, we live our own thoughts every single day. Like there's proof in front of us every single day. And I don't think it means that our thoughts make bad things happen or good things happen. I think there is a universal circumstance, but we can witness time and time again, how our thoughts impact our reality in the biggest way. Couldn't have said it better. Yeah. And I think about making a life change. Just, I think about, you know, going through this experience transitioning into motherhood and how difficult it has been for me to make life changes, life changes that I know that I need to do for my health, for my baby's health. And I'm just, I'm used to living the life that I'm used to living. And I think about our Sakara clients and how difficult it can be for them to make changes in their own lives 
that sometimes I think it can be easy to just take that step and start caring for yourself, start caring about the food that you put into your body, start making the shifts to bring in positive thoughts or different ways of thinking into your life and different people. But it's so hard. It's so hard to make the change from what you're used to doing every day. And I think it really does start with your mind, like what we're talking about. Well, it's wild. It's like what we'll say in a somatic healing approach is that somebody will really change when their scope of pain passes the threshold of what they can manage, but then change occurs when their tool set catches up with that scope of pain. And from a cellular perspective, it takes 25% more ATP or cellular energy to start to change to a new route home or you know, going to a new grocery store, just having neurological, physiological change takes 25% more energy, but we have such an energy depleted and exhausted system for most people that even if the pain is high because we're so depleted, that tool set can't rise up to meet that change threshold. And so the, the power of rest and the power of being with people that remind us that no change can ever really happen alone, whether it's inside of relationship or community or a faith-based practice, that we're changing to something that so deeply has the person we're becoming. I have that favorite quote from that mystical rabbi, the Baal Shem Tov. I'm sorry if my pronunciation is wrong, but he'll say, let me fall if I must fall. The one I'm becoming will catch me. And I have to just repeat that when I'm standing on that threshold of like everything around me is an unknown, that I know something inside of me is bigger than this moment. It will catch me in this moment. But without a faith-based practice or a community practice or an inner practice, people's pain threshold gets pushed to a breaking point. And what are some ways that we can even start to unlearn and then also reimagine? Like, how can we start to unlearn some of these things and even make the space to imagine a new life, a new world, a new relationship so that we're not doing what you said, which is, oh yeah, I kind of want my husband to be like, you know, my future husband to be like my ex, but a little bit more like this and a little bit more like that. Like, how do we, how do we unlearn and start fresh in our imagining? I'd love to, you know, bounce it back in a moment and hear how both of you do. I think first we have to respectfully impersonalize the shadow. Like what we've done is, is each of our darkness, you know, the places where we've been hurt or abandoned or betrayed or left or unsafe. For a lot of us, we internalized those and took it so personally that that must mean it's who we are. And then anything in life that confronts the place where we're manipulative or we're lying or we're not feeling worthy of life when somebody has seen that or just touched that, it feels like that's then what we have to go defend. Like it's some deeply personal secret. And so when we can impersonalize the wound that said, that's something that occurred to me and I did some things, I created patterns and structures and masks to pretend I wasn't hurt. And so that we can make that hurt place super tender And then in that place of just being tender and learning a new softness and learning a new relationship to really loving that darkness, that wound, we can only reimagine when we go into that dark space because otherwise we're just bypassing it. We just want 
I'll quote it again, this amazing non-dualistic teacher, Adi Ashanti, will say, you know, most people, what they want is you can imagine when the caterpillar is going into the chrysalis to become the butterfly, there's a point where the caterpillar just wants to be a flying caterpillar. It doesn't want to deconstruct and become this like gelatinous mess of nothing. And so many of us want to do that. When we dream, we just want to be a better me. But we don't realize we have to deconstruct the places that pushed love out and lied about who we were and faked it to the point where we felt like a fraud and just say it out loud to each other to depersonalize it and say, those are things I put over my perfect nature as a child or I inherited from like way back when. And I think that's number one, impersonalize the shadow so we can look at it and be honest about it and not take it like it's the thing we need to defend. And then, you know, my biggest work comes from right now and all times my biggest teacher, Byron Katie, has put the mind through ruthless inquiry of have every sentence that I believe is stressful or painful and have it end in a question mark. Is it true? And start to have a ruthless relationship to truth. And for me, when I was growing up, my mom was really volatile. Like before she got cancer, when I was 14, she was a really volatile person. And it was safer as a child for me to lie than tell the truth. You know, so I'd rather lie about bleaching my sweater than get yelled at. And it was well into my 20s where I realized it was way less safe to lie than to tell the truth. You know, I was hurting myself and hurting people and breaking up relationships and totally out of integrity. And so when I had to reconfigure that place of really, is it true or coming to some form of fact-based inquiry, I had to reassociate telling the truth with being synonymous with love or synonymous with God, if that word's okay. So truth to me, I didn't know what that meant, but I knew what love felt like and I knew what God felt like to me. And so I had to have something that made me want to tell the truth that it had something for me. So I think those are two really important things. Question what we believe that's stressful, that puts a conditioned and confined reality on who we are and what we can do. We're people and like we all live on a planet where there's seahorses, like everything is crazy (laughs) impossible. Like it's insane what this intellect has done. Yeah. But we haven't even seen what the human heart can do. We haven't even seen it. It just feels like we're so, sometimes I ask myself, so like I would say my husband is by far my biggest teacher. Like if quarantine has done anything, it's just made me realize like how deeply I love him, but how deeply hard some of our stuff is. Oh my gosh. It's, it challenges me to like a core of myself that I didn't even know was possible. And this time where we've been, you know, 24 seven together has really magnified it. And I think that's true for so many people. But sometimes when I were in our stuff, I'm like, wait, why am I here? Like, what was I so unwilling to give into or risk? Or like, what was I honestly risking by not just letting him be right? Or by not just saying, oh yeah, you know what? I was being cavalier there. Why, why, why when there's truly nothing at risk, like I'm going to wake up tomorrow, God willing, I'm going to, you know, still be in this relationship, God willing, like, and it's going to be better if I just would let myself get into that mush before being the caterpillar. Then it's like this whole thing of how do I stop myself and ask myself, what am I actually risking? If I just stop, if I stop with whatever narrative it is that's going to make me say the thing that I know is then in turn going to trigger him. And then there we are. 
No, if you just change, if you're different, if you're a different person than you were a second ago, if you're so used to doing something the same way, it's, it is that, it's the making that change yeah, and it's so a lot hard. of ego pain. And you touch on such an important method there, D, of changing the question. You know, it's so many times we're in something that's triggered or, or intense and we say, why is this happening? Why are you doing that? Why are you behaving like that? But if we change the question to who I want to be in this moment and what do I have to risk defending this? Or even the question of not what am I defending, but how long have I been defending this perspective to see that like, this isn't my husband. This is when I was eight with my sister. You know, that who, what, where, when is so, when else has this shown up? Who do I want to be here? Who do I want to be in a couple years in this? Just changing the question helps us access a different part of ourselves that has nothing to defend. Because when we're in a defense like that, you can imagine that it's so hard to let go of because you're defending something that feels so close to a core wounding that if I let you be right, I give you power and then I am susceptible. So it's not like turn left, turn right. It's I'm susceptible. <laughs> you know, it's so intense. Right. And is that kind of to pull it back to our other theme of can we reimagine? It's like, first, we have to be willing to be susceptible. We have to like be in the muck. We have to be the mush becoming the caterpillar. And that's so hard unless it's forced, like it's being forced right now. It just seems to be the way life teaches us. Humans seem to really be 11th hour species. We're not people that change conceptually. We change when the husband's left and the kids are sick and the money's gone and the climate. For being people that live in an imagined future, we don't have much forethought. <laughs> you know, we're never in the present, but it's wild. There's such systemic insanity to this way we seem to call normal. We usually ask at the beginning what your mission is, but we got distracted by your amazingness. So what do you believe you were put on this earth to do? What is your mission? It's super personal. You know, I think sometimes I fall into a default of assuming that question means work. And that's not the truth for me. Like my mission is really to see if I can become the most me, me that my soul holds in trust. And that's in work, in relationship, and in good relationship with earth. It's to see if my heart can be so available like Whitney's is right now, that available heart that where I go becomes this field of me. And that's an always changing definition. But I really feel like when we're striking that chord of who we're meant to be, there's this music, this symphony, this harmony that just creates a life around us really effortlessly. You know, like they'd say it is the Tao. But I, I really feel that mission of if we can be so uniquely ourselves in integrity and in, in the heart and in truth, can a whole life of abundance and service and community arrange itself for us? I just want to really be me here and have a really available heart to life. What are some of the things that hold you back from being you? Codependence has been a big one, assuming that everybody's emotional state is mine to manage. It's really hard to, before I understood what codependence was or you know addiction enabling and the great step work of Al-Anon and that kind of stuff, seeing people in pain, being empathic and having a healing bend to me. I would rather put myself into deep conflict than see somebody else in pain. So that, managing people's emotional state when it's none of my business, avoiding conflict, both as my family structure and as a Canadian, I haven't done conflict well. And so 
you know, what we'll often say is people who avoid conflict create more violence. And so I had to really learn that, that like I would have passive aggression or seething rage or things that like would come out as eczema or boils when I just wouldn't say like, hey, you upset me there. Hey, I'm not being cool here. So managing other people's emotions, avoiding conflict and being really obsessed with what I think people think of me. Like I would leave pleasure and go into what I assume someone needs of me or what I don't want of me. And I'm just like, I don't exist then. So I've had to be really diligent of just like, it's not my business. This is my lane. Everyone can have their own experience. And, and that's been like a mantra for me. Everyone's having their own experience. Um, and it's tricky with my work. I've been in group work for 17 years. And so my work is strong because I can empathically and psychically read where people are. But that's dangerous, especially when, when I was so young getting into it. Yeah. In, in your work, you're talking to people all day long and you're hearing heavy stories and lots of emotion. How do you not take that on? It's purely trial and error. My first teacher lived with a high level C-spine injury. She lived with quadriplegia. And so before I was even teaching yoga and meditation, I was running teacher training. So I was super green and we were in 12 hour groups and then we'd go home and do her body care and it was trial by fire, but um, I spent my whole 20s unable to be in functional intimate relationships and in rashes. And I'd be teaching sometimes and my, light, my eyes would get so sensitive to light, I'd have to teach whole trainings with a rash on my face and sunglasses. And I didn't know how to ground it. I, just, I was making it up as I went. And then I just grew up and I have super strong teachers and really strong practices that taught me everything about when there's a storm, batten down the hatches. And when people get slippery, drop your anchor, you know, and, and don't go where the biggest pain in the room is going. And so I had to just learn to like, get a seat and find my womb and find like, something that saw a revolving door of people's pain, but kept my eye on the revolving door of God, the revolving door of healing, the revolving door of truth, the revolving door of love. And so I had to just change my eye to not be obsessively looking for pain, but it's a constant struggle. And now for a quick break, we wanted to take a moment to tell you guys about one of our newest Sakara products, the Foundation, which is a packet of your daily essential supplements all sakarified, so to speak, meaning completely clean, plant-based, bioavailable, and coming from whole food sources. Lots of times people think that supplements are just pills that you take, but really you should use the same level of scrutiny and standards that you would for your food. So these supplements are not only incredibly effective, but also incredibly clean after taking them just for a couple weeks, you'll feel increased energy, better digestion, more restful deep sleep, brain clarity, and boosted immunity. And we like to think of this as our nutritional insurance. So yes, first and foremost, you want to get your nutrients from the foods that you eat every single day. But if you are a Sakaralite, which we know you are since you're listening, you know that we believe in eating clean and playing dirty, that None of us are perfect, nor would we want to be. 
sometimes life gets in the way. And even though I get Saqqara food delivered to me every week, some weeks I just don't eat as well as I wish I, I could have. And so this is a great way to make sure you're getting all of the essential nutrients you need to feel and look your best. And for all of you Sakara lights out there right now, we're gifting you $15 to use towards your first purchase of the foundation. Just use podcast 15 at checkout on Sakara.com. And we put a lot of love and work into creating these supplements over the past three years at least. So we hope that you love them just as much as we do. Enjoy. I really just want to see people shine. And one of the things I've really been working on is not taking anything personally. And it's really hard. Like I come from a household where everything was personal. Like my mom just has a really big fear of being wrong or being seen as doing something bad or wrong or inconsiderate or anything. And I've internalized that and don't share it to the extreme, but practicing not taking anything personally is so hard. And, you know, the star, my little one has really helped me because as she's become a toddler, you experience every emotion in a human with her and you witness how it's exactly what you were saying, Allie, like, she's allowed to have her own emotional response about anything for no reason at all. And as her parent creating a space where she gets to feel anything and she gets to feel safe feeling anything, I don't need to tell her to stop crying. I don't need her to tell her to laugh harder, you know, just whatever, however she shows up emotionally, I want to hold space for that and let her know it's okay. And that also means like when she's mean, when she, you know, when she pushes you or when she doesn't say thank you or when she's mad at you for no reason or there's a reason for her. But witnessing, it's been a real life witness for me to just see that it's actually not personal. That is her experience. And I've been trying to use that in other aspects of my life because there's a lot around my relationship with my husband where I can tell if he is just thinking a bad thought, like it drives him crazy. And I'm sure so many people are like that, but I'm just like so tuned into him. And he feels like he can't really have this emotional life because I'm always like, I know what's going on. So like he doesn't have, even if it's okay with me that he's, you know, in a bad mood or whatever, sometimes he's like, I just don't want you to know. <laughs> like, well, but in that knowing and in that kind of empathic experience, it's my habit to take it really personally. Like, what did I do? Why is he in this mood? And it's been such a practice for me in this empathic relationship to learn to disassociate myself, that I can witness his pain or his sadness or his anger or any emotion and not take responsibility for it. And I'm I'm just starting to like get to a really good place where I'm not just faking it till I make it, <laughs> but really starting to be okay with his ups and downs and, and whatever the normals of life. But I think that's a really important practice for 
for anyone who tends to take on energies because it starts to feel just so personal. That's really wonderful said. And, and there's a cruelty in it too, because it's when we have, it, it's like you've got Niobe and, and before she could speak words, she could understand everything. And she was having her own experience, but it takes so long for the language centers to catch up and say, I'm hungry. But she had lots of experience of feeling it and expressing it. And that happens in us too. Like you'll pick up on your husband's sadness and want to know what it is. What is it about me? What is it about me? And so then he's denied that experience of just taking a second, letting it come to the language centers of even understanding it enough to speak it, you know, before it's already a dynamic and it's already hurt you. And it's like, it's like, there's places where we got to still keep secret and sacred so that we get to have our own emotional experience with each other. Yeah. And what are some of the ways? So I have this funny story about you. I was telling our team before we started recording is we've been dear friends for, I don't know, like a decade, I guess, maybe, maybe a little bit longer. And just jumped into deep friendship. Like I didn't, it wasn't like I met you through yoga or I met you through your work or you met me through mine. It was just deep friendship. And so I had this, I didn't really understand necessarily where all your work kind of manifested in the world. I obviously went to your yoga classes and they're just so profound. I had somewhat of an understanding, but it wasn't until a couple of years ago really where I just got into a circle of friends who were all kind of new friends to me. And in talking with them, they all just started talking about this woman they work with. who's like their spiritual teacher. You know, they would use the word guru, like their person that they call and that they don't think they could live without. And then of course it was you, which didn't surprise me at all because I feel very similar, but because we, it's a friendship discussion, it's not a, oh, I call you as a spiritual teacher and you know, you charge whatever an hour, it's just like in our friendship. But can you talk a little bit about that work too? Like, what is it when you, do you call yourself a spiritual teacher? Like, what do you think you are to these people that so greatly depend on you for their, I would say, spiritual, emotional happiness? And sanity. It's a question that's complicated to answer because I've done, you know, to my own detriment and also to like something that's really true in me. I've avoided being very vocal and very public and declaring things like that because I just always felt like the work spoke for itself. And I've always had an extraordinary amount of work and great people and not had to be on the rooftops yelling out, here's what I am and here's what I do and I have an answer, you know. And so to that in the world we're in now, it also is my Achilles heel to not have a huge online presence and not say, this is what I am. I've really tried to make work out of just really being me, you know, and that's very edgy thing. And the thing that people want to know, what do you do and how do we place you? Because for me, my work has always shifted based off of the thing I'm the most into. And for a long time, I was a yoga teacher and I taught teacher trainings all over the world for 15 years. I would have 10 groups a year. I'd have them for two years. I'd be so in group. But what happened over and what happened inside of that is I really had this front row seat at watching group dynamics, watching the nervous system inside of edgy spaces and triggered spaces. I had a front row seat at watching um, patterns. And so I just started to study people's patterns, patterns of mind, patterns of protection, patterns of wounding. And when I moved to New York seven years ago, I, I would only run two trainings a year and they weren't yoga teacher trainings. People would just come in and I'd call them live-in. 
I just got more, you know, more age and more maturity and more confidence to say like, just come and, and live and we'll just do work. You know, we'll look at what's up and we'll find how to go through it in a good way. And that's not me. You know, I'll give you the tools that have saved my life because any tool I have is not because I institutionally learned it. It's because it saved my life. I can say that clearly. And so then I started pulling back from group work and I started taking on one-on-one clients of just letting them talk and letting me learn. I just let myself learn how to see and what to see when somebody would come to me with a problem that would range from anything. And I just trusted myself to be able to meet them in a place that said, okay, what do we want to do about it? And what's going on? And then when I hit my upper edge of what I knew to do with it, I'd have an amazing team of people that would be therapists or trauma workers that we could refer out to. But inside of it, I think there's a real language that needs to be had of bringing back the language of of prayer and how to speak to the place that's good inside of us and how to be in just that right relationship to ourself and have a trustworthy mind and to reconnect to like the goodness of the heart again. And that seems to really speak with people. And so I'm always just at that edge of calling myself nothing. You know, I don't call myself, I, I'm a teacher, but I don't call myself a healer or a spiritual teacher. I've just, I've taught, I've taught the mind and the emotional body and the physical body for 17 years. And Whit and I have talked about this a lot, that there is a place where we go and categorize people. Like, what do you do? And that moment we answer the question, like I really refused for a long time, especially when I moved to New York, calling myself a yoga teacher, because that comes with a lot of my own connotations. That place of then saying it and then getting defined by it, I think is so limiting. What if next I want to become a loomer? (laughs) Totally. Well, we talk about the stories we tell ourselves. And when we tell ourselves we're this, we're therefore not that. And we really limit ourselves. And you are so not a yoga teacher. Yoga is one of the tools that you have in your toolkit and one of your ways to express your teachings to people. But it really is a limiting term for you. For, for what we know yoga to be as taught in an hour and 15 asana class. But for me, it, it is a real, like a yoga teacher. There's an entire mental and emotional infrastructure and spiritual infrastructure, obviously, inside of the yoga practice. You guys have given me such great business advice and feedback. It's like, that's also the hard part. This society and economy works when you call it, claim it, niche it. Clarity. Clarity definitely helps. Clarity helps. But I also believe that we can just strike the chord of who we are and let the matrix take care of it. Mm -hmm. I know that sounds a little bit funny, but I do believe that there is a a shaped hole in the world. That when truth rings, that it reverberates. Yeah. A couple years ago, I was playing some games inside of paradigms that I think I operate in. And I saw this big paradigm that I believed that the harder I work, the more money I make. And I was like, what if the more I take care of myself, the more money I make? What if I play for that? It's anybody's game in this weird wild west. And I just like started to change the games I play. What if the more I value myself, the more I'm valued? What if the more I love my truth, the more it's like just started to play with those games. And like, I haven't been disappointed yet. I love that. I love your entire theme of how do we become very true to ourselves? Because it's something that actually, I don't know if I've ever really thought about. I don't know if I've ever really asked myself that question, I kind of, I, I act on impulse a lot. And so I, my instincts and gut drives a lot of my decision-making, my, where I end up, how happy or unhappy I am in any given situation. But it's a really interesting question to just like stop and ask ourselves, like, what 
does it mean to be completely true to ourselves? Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know if the two of you have had to confront it because you've just known it and created from it, but maybe your listeners do. But what what would you say? Oh, well, what I was going to say is I think it is this, it's a similar concept to when we talk about shining your light, that's opening up yourself to allow others to see your soul, the pure, true you of who you are, and not cover it up with these layers of ego and pain and hiding and, you know, the masks and lies and things that you were talking about earlier. And so it is, you know, it's always a work in progress of how can we shine our light a little bit more? How can we be a little bit more ourselves, more true, and share our soul, that light with others? I was just going to add, because the part that I, I'm hearing when when you say that is, it's not just being true to yourself. It's also really believing that you're deserving of the things that will reverberate when you shine. I think that's the hard part for a lot of people, is that when you step into your power, when you really shine, when you really are the true essence of of who you are, then I do believe what you were saying, Allie, that the universe and the matrix responds. But are you willing to receive what comes from that? Or are you going to turn it away because you don't feel like you're deserving? I think most people are scared of feeling like good things are coming their way and they're necessarily deserving of them. It's easier to believe that I'm not worthy. Well, yeah, and we, we like all of us have just had our heart broken so many times, especially if we've been willing to live with it available. Like, it's not really a world for the open-hearted folk. <laughs> so it makes sense that we would then go protect what's sacred and hide it in a way, a place where even we forgot where the key is. It's funny that but, you just said that because I was going to ask you, you talk about the magic of a broken heart. Like, what do you... What does that mean? I love a broken heart so much. <laughs> it's, you know, and, 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 and I say that with like a lot of respect because some people listen to this and there's a heart that, you know, isn't broken, it's shattered. And I think that there's some things we don't heal from this go round. maybe not until we die and go back to like, I can imagine that being the loss of a child or some, some real things that shatter the heart. But when I speak of a broken heart, you know, what I've seen about my own life and I've endured a lot of great losses of the deaths of good friends and sick parents like I've, I've endured some things but to me the thing that's been broken always is my expectations of how things are going to go especially in relationship because what could be broken it was really just this false expectation that everybody should always stay or this moment that we're in should last forever. You know, the only thing that's ever broken are these pretend realities I put over top of it. But the deeper I've gone into my own heart, there's a place that can neither be touched nor broken nor destroyed. It's just always loving more. And and what I've learned about heartbreak is there's a good way to do it and a hard way to do it. And if we take those places where life has cracked us, and we don't let it harden us and we don't become victims and we don't turn against people, but we really use it as a chance to just let more in, just crack the expectation and crack the guard. A broken heart has done almost more for me at times than good love has, you know, and that's a really hard thing to say, but they're neck and neck. Would you both agree? thousand percent. I think in the midst of telling ourselves all these narratives, those are the veils that let us feel safe 
in the midst of nothing's changed. Like it's still just as risky to be alive, but our narratives are informed by our past experiences. So if something's happened again and again, you can believe that it will happen again, but we forget that it's never guaranteed ever, even if it's happened a million times before. And those moments where our hearts are broken, you know, like this pandemic, what's rising from the ashes, so to speak, of what we're collectively going through, it really is this opportunity for deep, deep introspection and asking ourselves, yeah, like we've been cracked open. And sometimes I think those those times where we're cracked open are such a gift because I don't think we could ever, it's really hard to like crack yourself open. We wouldn't do it. We're yeah. too scared. We wouldn't do it. And I think like it's it's in those places where you know, I don't really trust somebody that's neither broken someone's heart nor had theirs broken because like there's just, there's a humanity that comes online and a, and a mercy and a, a gentleness that comes online when you're in the trenches with somebody that's lost their parent. Or I, I think we've created this really allergic response to contrast where, you know, even in the, the, the terrible spiritual language of like the light, the light, the light, or to really honor that everything is because of its opposite that to know love is because you've known the loss of it and to know worth is because mm-hmm. you felt worthless and to know faith is because you have swum in doubt and to really like honor how much everything belongs to the opposite of itself. So beautiful. What, what do you think about broken heart? Well, I was just going to say, I think that that's such a really nice note to end on. I don't think that you could say anything <laughs> more beautiful. I agree. <laughs> I would put it past you. <laughs> no, just, I was thinking when you said that, we need to make sure to tell our listeners to listen to this episode all the way to the very last word because it's just so beautiful and meaningful. Well, we like to end with light work. So helping people, giving people a challenge or practice and exercise, whatever it is, in order to help them shine their light a little bit brighter, right? So just like what we were talking about, how some sort of practice or challenge to remove some of those layers so that they can allow their soul to shine. So I'd love for you to share a light work with our listeners. I would really recommend reclaiming, you know, we talk about it a lot, reclaiming that ancient, ancient yet growing extinct language of prayer where we get to have a place inside that we talk to what's always listening and what's always loving and what's always good. And I think prayer has gotten so diminished into these places of like learning repetitions to things that don't mean it, but it's like, it's a quiet voice inside. That's just like, thank you. Or I need help or walk with me. And what it does, I think is start to create that, both that dialogue, but that question of who am I speaking to? And does it live inside of me that I could pray quietly and it still hears, you know, and even if somebody doesn't have a belief practice or a faith-based practice, there's a communication to something that's good from a place inside that remembers that I think is very important at this time. And I've seen it do miraculous things, the practice of prayer. And so how do you pray? How does one pray? My primary teachers in it, you know, I was from about 25, I was with the Council of 13 Indigenous Grandmothers. And what Grandmother Agnes would always say is there's no wrong way to pray. And thank you is perfect prayer to begin with. Because even just that like internal thank you, thank you for this life. It creates this that again that questioning of like well who who am I thinking and just that like that response to like something's listening and there's something to dialogue with 
that there's something in me bigger than me. And then I really recommend stumble your way through it. And so stumble through it like, uh, thank you for that hard person you put on, you know, like that awkward thing that happens when you're learning how to talk from a real place, stumble through it. And then what one of my favorite Franciscan priest Richard Rohr, what he teaches is that you pray until you feel like you become the prayer, like pray until the prayer changes inside of you. And so whether you just say thank you until something feels grateful inside of you, or you say, help me until you feel like you have all the help you need, pray until it feels like the prayer has changed you. And he'll say, I love what he says. He'll say that we're never trying to pray to change God. We're trying to pray to change ourselves towards that place that that I can get myself to that place. And I think we have to remember those old languages that speak in really soft, good words. Oh, I love you. I love you women so much. And I love your babies. And I love being with you. <laughs> I just think the whole world knows how special you are. But this is the best way for them to see it. Mm, we're just so lucky we're surrounded by people like you. I feel the exact same. I do this life again and again with the two of you. Thank you so much for just being you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for believing in me and loving me. Thanks for crying your way through it. Wait, it just, I just, <laughs> I just, my heart is yours. <laughs> I can't wait to see your babies. Okay, so sorry I cried like through <laughs> half of that <laughs> episode All good, recording babe. today, but she's just, she's just so magical. And I think that's a really good reminder of what we're all here to do, right? I know she said it was her mission to try to be the truest form of herself, but I think that's really what we're all here trying to do, right? Shine that light a little brighter. And it made me think back to like times when I've done our level two detox program and just stripping away the noise stripping away the physical noise, our physical inputs of different foods we put into our body or emotional noise, energies from others, things that people are talking to us about or telling us what to do or what we should be or who we are, what we need to be in the future. And to just really be in that raw, open place of who we are in the moment. I loved how she talked about how we are always never, like we're never in the present. We're always thinking about the future, living in the past, yet not taking action to necessarily change our futures until the 11th hour. And it just, yeah, made me want to take a moment to enjoy the present. Like I think that the pandemic is hard and we're not living our normal lives, but instead of allowing all of that to be in the forefront of our minds or living in what might happen in the future, what has already happened in the past. Just take a moment to sit in this pause and to try to be the truest version of ourselves. I think it was just such a good reminder. When I think about what ultimately we're doing here at Sakara and what it means to be a Sakara light, I feel like that is the journey we're all on together is, you know, we use food, not as just a tool to feel good. You know, I remember when we had Dr. Ellen Bora on the podcast earlier this year, she talked about the goal is not to eat well. <laughs> like That's not our goal. You know, the goal is to get 
the things that are in our way out of the way. And so if you're not feeling good in your body, that is in your way of living your truest path, shining your brightest light. So the goal is not, I need to be a healthy eater. I need to, you know, work out all the time. Like those are not our goals. Our goals are, how do I feel like my best self? How do I get on the path that is truest for me? How do I, you know, shine my brightest light? Those are the goals that we're all ultimately after together. I think I had a moment of, almost a moment of feeling guilty for not taking certain actions to make change or certain prioritizing certain time for myself, for my family, for this baby that I'm growing and just, you know, but then also needing to just release Mm -hmm. that and to be okay with, I'm doing the best that I can do right now and that all of this is just a process and a journey. Yeah. And oftentimes like what she was talking about is what I got a lot from her was again, this idea of self-care. You know, she said it when we asked her for her mission, it's like her mission is not outwardly facing. Her mission is not her service to others her service to others is inherent in her taking care of herself and being her truest self and really working on herself. And I think that's easy to forget. We tend to put self-care and working on ourselves in this like nice to have bucket instead of the actually the most important work bucket. Yeah, but it's, it's a lot easier to say than it is to do and to make that change and to go into the chrysalis yeah. and become the mush. I think I, in times when we've had to do that for Sakara, I don't know, I've, I've relied on you a lot to like push us into the darkness, to push us off that cliff, to jump in, not knowing where we're going, but knowing that our future selves, whatever we're creating will catch us. And yeah. And like the secret is that then I rely on you. Like it's really just this, she talked about it, the, your community is a huge part of of your self-work because they hold up the mirror and then they also offer the the shoulder to lean on when you're scared. This is what we wanted the podcast for. There's so many aspects to what it means to live the Sakara life. And, and I think the Sakara life is just a synonym for our hope for people, our wish for people. The podcast, along with everything we create here, is hopefully just another tool for people to start to to shine and align and step into their power and yeah and ultimately it's this kind of work that I love so much and our Sakara nutrition and our products are the tools that help allow us to do this work that it sets that foundation if you're not feeling good in your body if you don't have the brain clarity if you're putting in negative physical inputs you're not going to have that same ability to get into this deeper emotional spirit work like these teachers are talking about. And so I think that's how all of this connects, right? Where people might look at Sakara as a nutrition program, but really Sakara is so much more than that. Sakara is this service here to help support you on your journey of life and a community of people who are here to lift you up and open your mind and 
hopefully fill it with ideas that inspire you to take yourself to that next level and shine your light a little brighter. Well, we hope all of you listening felt equally inspired (laughs) as Whitney and I did from hearing Ali speak. And as always, thank you for joining us on this Sakara life journey and being Sakara lights with us and learning with us. We're so grateful for each of you. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. Lights.